Hello, welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Tom Seymour, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined today by one of our associates in the football disputes team, Mario Flores Chamor, and two special guests, and they are Alexandra Gomez Brunovoy, who's the senior legal counsel at Thief Pro, and Omar Ongaro, who is a football regulatory expert and Deputy Chairman of the FIFA Dispute Resolution Chamber. So, welcome everybody, first of all. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Now, in today's episode, we will be discussing FIFA's new COVID-19 regulatory guidelines, which were released on the 11th of June. And those guidelines, as you may know, follow on from FIFA's earlier guidelines, which were published on the 7th of April. Both those sets of guidelines are designed to assist clubs, players, coaches, and their representatives in navigating their way through the various employment contract issues that have arisen as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. The first topic that I would like to talk about is that of course majeure. Everyone will be aware Article 27 of the RSTP states that Cases of force majeure shall be decided by the FIFA Council, whose decisions are final. Now, as far as I'm aware, the FIFA Council had, prior to the COVID outbreak, never previously issued a force majeure declaration under Article 27. Then, in the first set of COVID guidelines, FIFA stated that the Bureau of the FIFA Council had recognised that the COVID-19 situation is per se a case of force majeure for FIFA and football. And that therefore seemed to represent the end of any debate as to whether the COVID outbreak represented a force majeure event as regards at least the status and transfer of players. However, with this second set of guidelines, FIFA now seems to have retracted that declaration and instead stresses that whether a particular situation amounts to a force majeure event will depend on the particular circumstances of each case, including the applicable national law. But the first question I'd like to pose to our expert guests is, why do you think that FIFA has changed its stance? From my point of view, and and as we saw it in in FIFPRO, it was not really a change in FIFA's way of seeing the situation. It might be that it was further or better explained in the second document. So it looks like the decision taken by the Bureau was not made in the context of employment law. It was a decision of FIFA saying, like, okay, this has impacted FIFA and football. But they were not maybe specifically thinking of the employment relationship in each one of the countries. And when the first document was elaborated, that was already clear that FIFA could not determine whether there was force majeure in specific countries and under specific MAs. But this, is, of course, is something that, that raised questions because it seemed a little bit unclear. And of course, this was an unprecedented situation. So uh, no one really knew how to go about it and how to apply this. But I think it was really good that in the second document, it was clarified that it was not that FIFA was saying that it it constituted force majeure in every country. And of course, naturally, this could not be said because of of what FIFA is, but also because the situation in each country varies drastically. 
So there are countries that are not affected, there are countries that are slightly affected, there are countries that are heavily affected. So I think that, that it's more about that. I would certainly agree with Alexandra that I don't see a contradiction. I think if, if we look at how the whole document is set up, this is nothing but consistent because if FIFA insists on the fact that uh, national labor law should apply primarily, FIFA cannot just say everywhere in the world this is force majeure. Uh, for the reason that Alexandra mentioned, uh, the degree of the pandemic is not the same in every country, but also from a legal perspective, because not every country has declared a force majeure situation. I know, for example, South Africa is not. They have um, issued an act on a very particular situation, but they have deliberately decided that for South Africa, this is not a force majeure situation. Uh, there are countries that do not know the institution of force majeure. Uh, Swiss law is not that clear on force majeure. They are more operating on this deep changes of the circumstances. So I think in Latin is something like rebus substantibus clause. But Swiss law does not per se work with, with, with force majeure. So I think FIFA was not in a position to say that it's a force majeure everywhere. And Again, I think they knew from the very beginning by the fact that they were referring to, to national law. And therefore, I think it's just a consistent way of developing what they were saying from the very beginning. So I don't see a, a contradiction between guidelines one and guidelines two. Referring to Article 27, I mean, as you said, it was the first time that, that it was applied. And I think FIFA was just looking for, for a means to intervene in the situation. And, and, and the first point was, as Article 27 is also saying that the council can intervene when the matter is not provided for in the regulations. And so I think this was the, the first step. And then they said, okay, for football in general, this is a force majeure situation, so we need to intervene. But what they wanted to do is actually find the door to have the possibility to possibly adapt the, the text of the regulations, what was then eventually done. And in summary, again, I don't see a contradiction between guideline one and two, and I think it's just a congruent, consistent uh, evaluation, uh, evolution of, of what FIFA meant from the very beginning. Mario, do you have anything to, to add to that? Well, what can I add to the, to the, to the extremely well-crafted response by, 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 by Alexandra Nomar? No, I, at the end... I mean, I can perfectly understand why, from a legal standpoint and from a factual standpoint, why FIFA is not in a possibility to decide what and where force majeure occurs. Nevertheless, it, it in a way kind of defeats, in my view, a bit the purpose of Article 27, because at the end, if this article was not drafted in order to safeguard the common application of a specific situation to the football community, I would struggle to think which other purpose Article 27 has. I understand that, of course, when it was drafted, they didn't see a global pandemic occurring everywhere in the world, and therefore it kind of also is overreaching the, the FIFA's power. But at, at least I think that 27 had a different practical purpose than to just have it there for the sake of eventually allowing FIFA to intervene when I think FIFA had always had the power to intervene, at least from a regulatory standpoint. 
But again, I completely agree that uh, with Omar and Alexandra that it would not, at least in this particular situation, it would not serve any good purpose to, to declare force majeure everywhere in the world. Cool. Okay. Well, look, I'll move on to the next topic now, and that is expiring agreements and new agreements. And the first set of guidelines provided that employment agreements shall be governed by national law and the contractual autonomy of the parties. The latest guidelines instead provide that the parties to an agreement should always take heed of the choice of law which has been made in any agreement. And there thus seems to have been a slight change of position there, which is perhaps particularly important given that at question four of the latest guidelines, it is stated that unless the national law referred to in the new agreement provides otherwise, the parties will not be permitted to unilaterally amend the commencement date of the new agreement. So, given that change of wording, do you think that for the purposes of the guidelines, employment agreements are governed by national law only insofar as the employment contract actually contains a choice of law clause? What if it doesn't? What if the contract is silent as to the applicable law? Is it the case then that national law is not of relevance? So that's the, the starting question for whoever would like to answer that one first of all. I think that also here it, it will depend a lot on the specific situation and how things are drafted. But I wouldn't exclude necessarily if the national law is not mentioned in the contracts, the non-application in a case like this, only for this. I think that that is first, maybe the, the, the most important thing to, to highlight first. So that the, the national law will only be considered in order to analyze the modification of the contract in connection to the COVID-19 situation. That is the first thing because it was a misunderstanding uh, for, for many people. They thought like, okay, now national law has relevance for everything in the contract and what rules the termination and everything. And it's only for that specific part. But what I wanted to say as well is that in some countries, whether mentioned or not in the employment contract, there might be a CBA which refers to a certain regulation CBA that is incorporated in the employment contract. And there might also be no reference at all, but mandatory labor law that applies because oh. uh, players are workers. So there are really a lot of different situations. So I think all these things will have to be considered. So if it is included, then it's maybe the easiest, then you will consider it for sure only for this very specific point of the modification of the contract in relation to the COVID-19. And otherwise, the situation has to be looked at. Again, I, I in principle, I agree with Alexandra. I think that what she said is, is really important. I mean, the, the, the clear reference, the consistent clear reference throughout the guidelines to national law concerns exclusively the unilateral variation of contract and does not refer, for example, to the termination of the contract. So I think that's that's the important thing. And then maybe from a, a broader view of, of the guidelines, they are they are based on a what I would call a, a three or even a four-step approach. They say in case the competition is suspended, and this again is important, they refer only to the situation where the competition is suspended. The 
the first step is to try for, to invite the parties to find a mutual agreement, either on a club level or even a league level. If this is not happening and we have a unilateral variation of terms in the contract, only then there is the reference to the national law. Because they say that this kind of unilateral changes will only be accepted if either they are based on the national law or a CBA or another collective kind of, of, of collective agreement that, that exists. And only at this stage we would have to look at national law. And here Alexander is right. Even if there is no reference in the contract, there might be provision which is mandatory because they are workers which need to be taken into consideration. However, if this is not the case, if we don't have a clear applicable national law or CBA or similar, then there is the third step. And the third step says, well, then we have to look if the change was done in good faith, if it's reasonable and if it's proportionate. And FIFA is even giving some indications what a deciding body might take into account to see if it was in good faith, reasonable and proportionate. So, FIFA didn't stop with the guideline where it says there is no choice of law or we can't apply any national law. They gave indications in a third possible step. And then the fourth step is, 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 is a separate one because they, it's when they, everybody agrees to suspend everything and then there should be uh, an insurance or something like that. So that's why I think the fourth step is aside. But again, I think looking at it uh, from a broader perspective, there is a second step, that's the national law issue. But even if this is not the case, we would have a third step, which is provided in, in the guidelines. The other question for me is, is, is a bit more that, in, in, I don't know if it's in the first or in the second guideline, uh, they speak about avoiding unequal treatment. And I'm not sure if there is not a bit of a contradiction if you refer to national law. And at the same time, you want to avoid unequal treatment because one of the main reasons for the RSTP to exist is exactly to have an equal playing field all around the globe. If we delegate it now to national laws, we might indeed have different treatment of parties in similar situations in different parts of the world. But this is probably not the scope of the question. Well, I suppose there's two elements of equal treatment. There's equal treatment globally or in in football generally and there's also what i understand to be a relevant factor in terms of the guiding principles is equal treatment of a club's various players so it's self-evidently not equal treatment if you say to player a well i'm really sorry the economic situation is that you have to have a pay cut of 50 percent and then to player b you give them a pay cut of 10 percent or nothing at all mario do you have anything to add i guess you might not because those are two very full and Informed yeah, answers, but I, I am actually thinking about a potentially a third point that could give rise to unequal treatment. Because now I think, if I understand correctly, we all agree that national law will only be relevant as long as there is a clear choice of law in the contract, right? Because first we have the regulations, and the DRC should always decide on the basis of the regulations. And then you have the the procedure rule that says that when deciding cases, the DRC shall apply the regulations. Now, the guideline said, well, for this particular point, national law prevails over not the regulations because it's for this situation is not foreseen there, but at least prevails over the reasonable uh, good faith uh, variation. But that national law only applies if there is a choice of law in the contract. So 
you could eventually have two disputes by two players against the same club in which for whatever reason one of those contracts has a choice of a of log clause whereas the other doesn't and if both players go to the DRC because of the guidelines the DRC will have to apply for player A the national law first before going into whether there is reasonable and good faith variation but for the second player because there is no choice of law in the contract then they will directly go into whether the variation was in good faith or reasonable now imagine that under national law a club can actually cut 95% of the player's salary the drc will be bound to actually accept that variation because of how the guiding principles are drafted whereas in the second one not really or not necessarily because 95% you can argue is neither reasonable nor made in good faith that in at least in, in in most of the cases i would say so you risk as having national law apply only as to whether there's a choice of law in the contract you risk of actually treating players in very similar circumstances if not identical differently because the drc would be bound by that unless now Omar or Alexandra told me that the guidelines, the order provided in the guidelines is not mandatory for the DRC so that even if there is a choice of law in a contract and the guidelines provide that national applies before these reasonable and good faith steps that they can go directly to the third and disregard the national law. I mean, first of all, I, I really want to emphasize that the DRC is independent of FIFA. So if three judges are sitting there and they deem that the decision is not to be based on the guidelines, they can do it. They are free to do it. The guidelines are there to help. It's like the whole guidelines are recommendations for the parties. Parties are free to do something else if they want. And even more, it's for the deciding authority. Having said that, uh, the guidelines are also referring to the fact that there should always be an overarching principle of non-discrimination and equal treatment. So I think that here there is a responsibility not only from the DRC, but also from the FIFA administration to have an eye and monitor this kind of situation. So that if this is really happening, that two cases, two different players, same club, same circumstances, one with the choice of law, one without the choice of law, that the judges are made aware of this fact. And then on the basis of the non-discrimination and equal treatment basis, it should be that the two decisions are really going in the same direction, irrespective of whether one has and one not a reference to, to national law. And again, I don't have a problem with the DRC not applying the guidelines one-to-one -one because, again, the DRC is independent of FIFA. Yeah, I agree with Omar. And, and I think that that is really important to, to consider that this is, th these are guidelines and it's even in, in, in the name. So it's not a regulation that we all have to comply. Of course, they were negotiated. There was input from the different stakeholders. So different things were, were looked at and interests were tried to be protected for all the parties in a very difficult situation. They are not mandatory. So and this goes for, for, the, for the DRC and it goes also for the members. 
So I think it's also, yeah, what, what they were trying to look at was to have the best interests in this very particular situation for, for everyone. And it will not be perfect for sure. Um, and there will be, I guess, in the end, some decisions that will not be too fair if you consider all the circumstances. But uh, as I said, there is discretion for the DRC to look into all the facts and the circumstances. So um, I, I agree with Omar. Right. The final topic is agreements that cannot be performed as originally anticipated. The latest guidelines provide that the recommended guiding principles will only apply when a competition is suspended, which is something that Omar stressed earlier on. Does that mean that whatever its financial difficulties, a club cannot raise a COVID-based force majeure argument if the relevant competition has already restarted? Or perhaps more broadly than that specific question, how do you see that element of the latest guidelines, the focus on the suspension of the competition, affecting matters or impacting on disputes? Well, the negotiation with the, or among the, the stakeholders was to tackle the situation of the suspension or around the suspension. So guidelines and, and frequently asked questions, they were drafted considering that situation. Does that mean that that there will be no impact afterwards when the suspension is not there anymore on class, no. But then, in my view, uh, stakeholders should then sit together again in order to discuss the situation, if it's necessary, how it's necessary, what needs to be done, etc., etc. But I do not think that these regulations would apply to a case where after the suspension has ended, eventually the club realizes that he has a very hard financial impact and would need to use, let's say, one of, uh, of the um, articles of these uh, recommendations. Yeah, I think I, we, we, we said that parts of the guidelines maybe are, are ambiguous, are not straightforward, but here I think they are straightforward. I mean, the, the word suspended is even underlined in the guideline 2.0. So it's, it's very clear. The, the aim is for the guidelines to apply during the period of suspension of the competition. That there is an impact also afterwards, it's clear. Uh, club can try to, to bring it forward. The way it will be used, it's probably more difficult for them to make a point after that, unless, as Alexandra said, unless there will be new guidelines. Uh, which again are created by consultation. But if they there aren't, then I think it's still not excluded to try to make a point that it will be harder for the party that's trying to do it. But again, as we said in the beginning, uh, you can anyway not say it's a force majeure situation per se. So you will have to, to try to explain that this is a consequence of this and this and this situation. So I, I also think that for, for the DRC it will not be appropriate just to go back to ordinary life and say, well, financial difficulties for a club are never a good reason to, to amend the contract. So, I mean, again, uh, the circumstances will have to be evaluated. But the answer to your question for me is straightforward. Guidelines only as long as the competition is suspended. Now, Article 2 of the FIFA procedural rules provides that the governing law in disputes before the PSC and the DRC are the FIFA statutes and the regulations, whilst taking into account national law. 
Conversely, both sets of guidelines provide that the FIFA judicial bodies will recognise a unilateral variation of an employment contract where such variation complies with national law. Further, it's also well established PSC and DRC jurisprudence that national law does not apply given that the main purpose of FIFA regulations is to create a set of rules that is applicable globally to the entire football community. Therefore, what do you make of the guidelines' repeated reference to national law? And why do you think that FIFA has deviated from its long-standing jurisprudence in relation to national law? Is it just because this is a totally different situation, a totally novel situation, or is it something else? To be honest, I was surprised as well. And uh, particularly, I was surprised that uh, the player side would, would accept uh, this kind of, of, of approach. I was not involved in the discussions with the stakeholders, so maybe uh, Alexandra knows a bit more about the background which led to that decision. So I don't want to say too much about that. Uh, for me, in any case, it would be important that it is made clear that this is, as, as you were, were just saying, that this is applicable to this very, very particular situation and cannot be taken as a kind of prejudice to say, okay, this is a change in the approach and it will change also when situation is going back to hopefully normality. But, but you are right, I, I, I was a bit surprised about the clearness of this uh, approach uh, based on national law. Again, maybe, Alexandra, you can shed some more light on, on the reasons. As I said, all stakeholders were sitting together and negotiating this document. And as you can, as you may imagine, it was not an easy task. There was not only one draft, I can assure you. And there was a lot of exchange and, and of course, in many, in many ways, uh, yeah, interests that were in conflict. And of course, this did not come us, it didn't come from us, from the, from the player side, naturally. But we did understand it was an unprecedented situation. We understood that, as we explained before, and as Omar now referred to, it would be applied to a very specific area for a very specific and limited period of time as well. And it was more like, yeah, as a relief mainly for, for clubs to be able to rely on, on national law and have some guarantees there to know what was going to, to happen. So it is true. It is something that helps clubs more than players. But as I said, we needed to negotiate. In these interactions, we wanted to get some things clear. Clubs wanted to get some, th some other things clear. And, and, and in the end, this was applied. And of course, it was not that we said yes to it, just not thinking of the consequences. We just thought it's, it's very restrictive. It's for a li limited period of time. And, and it is true that, that it was a situation at national level for the different players would, would be very dif different. And, and of course, we wanted to work together with, with clubs in something that they found it, uh, was fundamental to, to help them a bit because, yeah, the clubs are the employers of the players and if they go bust, then our players are also without a, a contract. So we, we understood that we needed to work together. And if it was something that uh, they felt was so important in order to, to recover in a way from this uh, crisis, yeah, it was something that was uh, in a way granted. I don't know how to, how to put it. But. Well, no, that, that is um, illuminating to see behind the curtain. 
see how the deal was done. Moving on then very quickly to questions. Sorry, Tom, quickly, just quickly to quickly mention one point in this. I think it's going to be really challenging from a practical perspective for the DRC to actually determine whenever a case is actually COVID-related and that the guidelines actually apply. And I think that's going to be really interesting because there is a point of intention. Because, of course, a club can say, well, we terminate a contract, we vary a contract because of COVID, but it's because the player was actually injured and there had been six months without playing or because they don't want the player anymore. So there is, a, there is a point of intention within it that would be, I think, quite challenging to, to, to foresee in some, in, some, in some cases. And I think that that could get really interesting from, from a practitioner perspective. In terms of evidence, you mean? Yeah, exactly, basically, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it, it might depend on, on all sorts of things, but the burden would be on the club to establish that it was COVID-related. And as you say, they, they may find... Um, they, they may find they have difficulties. I think the first thing I would be looking for is well, how they've treated other players, which is something I've already mentioned. It might be difficult for them to claim it's COVID-related if they've terminated the contract of one player who's a, only a medium owner at the club. Moving on then to, to, to quick questions of procedure because we're, we're running out of time. Do you think that in order for a unilateral variation to be valid, it's necessary for the club to first seek a declaration from the DRC in that respect? Is there even the possibility for the club to seek such declaratory relief from the DRC? Or do you think that the DRC can only be seized of the matter if there is a dispute in due course? So if the player contests a decision to reduce their salary, for instance. How do you see it working procedurally? I think this is, at least for me, it's, it's quite straightforward. Procedural rules do not provide for the possibility to have a declaratory judgment. The guidelines do not speak about this possibility. Ergo, you can only have a dispute. Well, that was a nice quick answer. Alexander, <laughs> do, you, do, do you disagree? <laughs> I doubt you do. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I agree with, with Omar. For this to happen, that there should be amendments somewhere in a regulation so that this is provided for, but um, no, not for the time being. And then the last question is that, as I've already mentioned, the latest guidelines provide that parties must provide an independent expert report from a qualified legal practitioner in order to prove that a unilateral variation was made in accordance with national law. And it therefore seems likely that the DRC will face situations where it will have rival expert reports which disagree as to the position under national law. And the question is, how do you think the DRC will and should approach such case. I mean, I can imagine it being a bit of a nightmare for the DRC, um, a flood of cases, all the national laws. <laughs> yeah. So, so how are they going to cope, Omar, with that nightmare? First of all, I question the, the value of a so-called independent legal advice on both sides, because mm. we all know if you pay for legal advice, you get the one you wish. So it's very likely that both sides will bring me the advice supporting their position. So in the end, one easy way out would just be to say, okay, we are not taking into account any of those. And we would only take into account uh, advices which are made by, I don't know, a professor who is writing a paper on a specific topic and on, on that topic, and it's taken to support a position, but it's not made specifically 
for the purpose of the dispute and being paid by one of the parties. So, I mean, I don't know if this is, is the way out. I guess this is something which any court that needs to apply uh, foreign law has to face. The DRC has never done it before. So we will see uh, what we do. And, you know, I don't want to say too much in which direction I would go, because in the end, it will be something which certainly we will have to discuss with, with the, the co-arbitrators or co-members of the DRC when we sit together. And I prefer not to, inverted commas, jeopardize the situation too much by giving a statement, a too strong statement already now. I think, uh, in my view, the, re the guidelines or uh, they don't refer, it's not that they say that an uh, independent expert report has to be uh, provided. It's, uh, it, it, puts, it puts it as an example, which I agree is, is a bad example. <laughs> but, but naturally, as, as a judge, you will look at the, at the regulations. So if you are saying the United Variation of the contract was made uh, in accordance to national law, then you have to provide the national law and what the judges should do is look at that national law. And then if something is really uh, unclear or whatever, then other, as, as Omar said, other evidence that, that can be provided is doctrine, but, but not uh, an independent expert report. I, I agree with that. It, 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 it was something, it's, it is something that called my attention and, and, I even mentioned that lawyers, lawyers are not independent by nature. It's not the same as a position, for example, of a notary public. A notary public is formed in order to have an independence. And then you may question whether they have it or not, whatever. But it, it's the, the profession is formed so that you can have an independent analysis. But a lawyer is not even trained for that. So, uh, yeah, I also, it also called my attention, but I, I wouldn't give it too much importance. I think it's mentioned as an example within a recommendation again. So, so yeah, I, I wouldn't give it too much uh, relevance. For sure, what needs to be uh, added is the national law. I would say that if the national law is not there, uh, anything else provided would not suffice. That's how I see it. Okay, well, good. That's extremely helpful and those were quick answers to the last two quick questions which is excellent because we run out of time now for further information on the fifa guidelines and football's response to the coronavirus pandemic more generally then please go to our website that's morgansl.com and there you will be able to access the full set of guidelines and more if you're interested in signing up to our mailing list or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, then please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, or penultimately, in fact, please connect with us on our social media platforms, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook for articles, updates, and news pieces. And now, finally, uh, it's for me and Mario to give a very big thank you to Alexandra and Omar for contributing so fully and for being so helpful. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On Podcast. <laughs>